0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today, I have a different kind of guest than I usually do. He's a fantasy and sci-fi author by the name of Christopher Paolini. You may be aware of his best-selling young adult fantasy book, Aragon, which he wrote at the age of 15 and which was also made into a major budget film. The rest of the books in that series are Eldest, Brisinger, and Inheritance. You may also be aware of his more recent sci-fi novel called To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. I've been a huge fan of Christopher for a very long time, and it was an honor to pick his brain. We talk about his writing process, the art of storytelling, the difference between young adult fiction and adult fiction, his strange path to becoming an author, the shortening of our collective attention spans, and much more. This was really one of my favorite recent interviews, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, Christopher Pallini. Okay, Christopher Paolini, thanks so much for coming on my show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: As I was just telling you, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. In fact, my whole family used to read The Inheritance Cycle uh, and we'd pass the book around one after another from my dad to my sister to me. And so I guess before I get into all the questions I want to ask you, For those who, you know, may or may not be familiar with you, you know, my audience is not, actually, you're the first fiction writer I I think I've had on Mm. my podcast, which normally deals with more political or nonfiction or scientist type topics. So for those in my audience who may not be familiar with you, can you give a little summary of, you know, I'll have introduced you before this, but a little summary of sort of your childhood and how you came to write the sort of unlikely story of you coming to write this smash best selling young adult fantasy novel, Aragon and then, and then, uh, Subsequent books?
1: Sure. The short version is that I grew up in Montana, Uh, still live there, in fact, not too far from my childhood home. My mom is a trained Montessori teacher and a true devotee of education and helping children to learn. So when my sister and I were born, and as we were growing up, my parents were educating us right from the very start. And that resulted in them deciding to homeschool us because. They were seeing the results they were getting and didn't think that that could be replicated in the public schools that we were around. So the homeschooling continued. I fell in love with reading and writing. I absolutely loved it. It was the cheapest form of entertainment. You have to keep in mind, I mean, we were living in like a Ninety-year-old farmhouse with asbestos shingles on the walls and ground squirrels and mice dragging pieces of plaster through the walls during the night. So it was about as rustic as you as you get without living in a log cabin. Um, and we lived in a log cabin first with like a fifty-gallon steel drum for a stove. But you know, I loved reading and writing. And when I graduated from high school, which I did fairly early at fifteen, I needed something to occupy myself with. So I decided to try and write the sort of story that I enjoyed reading myself. And the sorts of stories I enjoyed tended to involve young men with magic swords and dragons, uh, having adventures. And that, 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 really led right into directly the to me writing Aragon. And then my family and I self-published Aragon. And I traveled all around the Western half of the United States doing promotional events, two to three, one hour long presentations every single day in various schools and libraries and bookstores. And that continued until Random House caught wind of the book and ended up publishing it. And the rest, as they say, is is history all of which makes for a wonderful story after the fact and it's very easy for me to just sort of breeze through it but it was incredibly <laughs> intense and stressful living through that
0: yeah the what really sticks out to me is the commitment required to do two or three 1-hour events for you know a book that wasn't yet a bestseller right like you know to be fair
1: we were selling copies
0: oh i see i see
1: okay so my parents were have always been self-employed. And Mm. when I gave the Maragon, they looked at it and said, you know, hey, this is something that we could work on together as part of our family business, because we were always looking for projects that the family could, you know, all sort of pitch in together with. And we knew the statistics as far as publishing go, which if you look into them, it's kind of grim. Uh, On one hand, more people are, are getting published now and more people are reading books now than at any other time in history. And even people who don't quote unquote read books are still doing an enormous amount of reading on the internet on their phones. Mm. So there's a huge market out there, Mm. but most books that get published get a very small advance. Mm. Most books don't earn out their advances. Most books get remaindered in, I think the average was something like two weeks after they're released, which is how you see all those discount bins outside Barnes and Noble and other bookstores. So we didn't want to go that route because I had put so much work into Aragon. We had something we owned, owned it free and clear. And so it was like, let's, Do something together. We spent a year preparing the book for publication. And I'd already done quite a bit of rewriting and editing. And then my parents helped me with a lot more editing and then helping design the book and get it printed. So that was a year in which they weren't working on other projects that they would have been working on to bring in an income for the family. And by the point where we actually had physical copies in hand and could start selling them, if the book had taken another two to three months to start turning a profit, we would have had to sell our house. I'll move to a city and just get whatever jobs we could. That's we We didn't have a farm, but the expression, you know, we bet the farm on it really is true. So when you have that kind of motivation, when you know that books sold means food on the table, you're willing to put yourself through discomfort that you wouldn't necessarily have been willing to otherwise. And that's been true of a lot of successful people Mm. I've met over the years, even those that perhaps started from a position of privilege, is that they've been willing to embrace that discomfort in order to pursue Mm. their longer-term goals. But again, it was a huge amount of discomfort. Like most authors, I kind of prefer being more of an introvert. So to have to go out Mm. and talk to all those people day in, day out, it's an enormous expenditure of energy, even if you enjoy doing it like I do.
0: So that leads me to two questions I didn't expect to ask. One is how do you keep the fire lit once you've become extremely successful? So take that one first.
1: It varies and it's okay to slack off on occasion. I mean, you can't push, you can't keep your foot pressed on the gas pedal all the way down all the time. It, it doesn't work. You know, same thing like with training. You know, you can't lift your one rep max, can't run as fast, so you can't do all, all out sprints every single day, you'll burn out. So it's okay to relax every once in a while and enjoy life. But for me personally, I have some very large motivators that keep me working pretty hard all the time. One is my family, taking care of my family, taking care of myself, making sure that there's a roof over our heads, that I do not have to worry about the food on the table. That's a big deal for me because of how I grew up. I mean, I remember when I was a really young kid and we were in our log cabin, we were having to use chewing gum to plug the holes between the logs because we couldn't afford to have the chinking put in during the summer. So that when it rained, the rain was coming in through the walls. So, you know, there's they're sticking chewing gum between the logs to keep the rain from coming in. That's anything, (laughs) when the walls keep the rain out, that's my definition of success. When, when I don't have to worry about (laughs) the food on my plate and paying for it, that's my definition of success. And it's a really big motivator for continuing to work hard. The other motivations for me are perhaps more pure in a sense. I love reading. I love the effect that stories have on me and have on others. I love artistic beauty and I have all all these stories I want to tell. And even if I were as rich as Elon Musk, I would still be working this hard to write the stories I want because if I don't put that work in, those stories will never exist, except in my head. I'll Mm -hmm. never be able to share them with anyone. And I have so many I want to tell. And I only have so many years on this earth that if I don't keep my nose to the grindstone, you know, it's just not gonna happen.
0: Yeah. So my other question is, when you're going around doing these presentations, I guess, presumably reading passages from Aragon at libraries and public schools and so forth. Mm. Is the feedback you're getting from people informing, you know, how you write the next books? Like, is it, are you noticing what sentences people really react to? And is that, is that feedback
1: useful for you? In the beginning, not so much because most people hadn't actually read the book. So I'd read them a passage and I wouldn't really get any immediate feedback aside from the energy levels of the audience. So in one sense, yes, I learned how to perform the lines better. I learned how to choose my readings better. What ended up happening though is over the years, my writing has become more similar to the way in which I speak. Now, Mm. when I'm writing fantasy, as opposed to science fiction, it's a a more elevated prose level style. It's a a little bit more formal than I speak. But we do things in speech that we don't necessarily do when writing. And I found that (laughs) making my prose a little bit more like speech actually just helps it flow way better. Mm-hmm. You see this with some authors who are just, who have this amazing authorial voice and you go, what is an authorial voice? I always struggled with this. It was when I was starting out, it's like, you know, how do you get this, uh, you know, this, uh, esoteric and hard to figure out authorial voice? The answer is you get it by solving the same problems over and over and over and over and over again. And you develop your own style, your own way of solving those problems. And you develop shortcuts. If you look at someone like Stephen King, one of the reasons he's so successful, and there are many reasons, but one of the reasons is that his authorial voice is so accomplished, so assured. And it's, It feels like he's sitting around a campfire with you and he's going to tell you a story. He is going to uh, roll out this narrative for you and the voice never falters. And Mm. it can just go on and on and on for hundreds and hundreds of pages. That's a huge, that's an underrated skill right there. So the more I've done public speaking, the more that has influenced my own sense of rhythm and uh, pacing and and even word choice. Mm. Add on to that, you'll notice that a lot of authors who are noted for the beauty of their prose often have musical experience, like they you know, were trained with in a, in an instrument or trained with their voice. And it does seem to spill over into the, how they control their prose.
0: Yeah. So as I mentioned, with the Inheritance Cycle, we would buy the new book when it came out and my sister would read it first and then my dad would read it. And then when he was done, I would hmm. read it because I, I read the slowest of the three and I didn't want to hold them up. You know, which is interesting because it is categorized as, quote, young adult fiction. And your new novel, T- To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, is not categorized as young adult fiction. Mm. And I, th- I think you've, you've said that you don't think of it. You think of them as in belonging to those two categories. And I'm curious, what do you make of this category, young adult fiction, right? If, if adults have no problem enjoying the stories... Mm. What generalizations separate YA from adult fiction, if any?
1: Well, in my case, I wasn't trying to write YA. I was trying to write the best version of that particular story that I could write. Mm-hmm. And as you go through the inheritance cycle, starting with Aragon and then Eldest, Brissinger, and the fourth book, Inheritance, they become progressively more mature. And the fourth book really could be shelved in the adult fantasy section with no problem. As for what differentiates YA from adult fiction, it's hard to say uh, because there's such a wide range in the genre. On the low end, you have books that are almost more suited for middle grade. They tend to be simplistic in theme, simplistic in character, simplistic in style. Doesn't mean that they're not enjoyable and it doesn't mean they can't say profound things and they can't be beautifully crafted pieces of art, but they tend to... To be more easily understood and digested by their target audience, because that's, you don't give a 10 year old or a 13 year old Dostoevsky necessarily. Maybe the 13 year old, but probably not the 10 year old. But that genre, but it also ranges up to, Books that are incredibly complex and incredibly beautifully written, including some great works of literature. So you sort of pick your poison with that. The publishing definition is simply that if the main character is under 18, it's young adult, or if they're young enough, it's middle grade or even younger than that. That's it you write a character you write a book with the main character under 18 it, you can have as much violence and sex and politics and whatever else you want to have in it and it's still considered YA mm. but whether or not you know people would consider it appropriate for a child is a completely separate matter
0: mm. so of the many story elements that exist right you have characters you have the arc of the characters mm-hmm. you have the world building you have the sort of two line hook or premise which of these first came to your mind, if you can put yourself back to 15 mm. uh, for the inherent cycle, inheritance cycle? And then which of these was the first to come to your mind in the case of to sleep in a sea of stars?
1: I, I tend to get ideas in a very similar fashion, no matter what the subject material. Uh, usually I get an image in my head, an image or a scene, and with it some form of emotion that's attached to it. So in the case of Aragon, it was the image and feeling of a young man finding a dragon egg. And also knowing that the dragon egg would hatch and that he and the dragon would bond together and have some sort of adventure. That was the core of the story. All the other work that I do in terms of world building, character development, is usually to support my initial idea, to turn it actually into a story and to give the story structure that readers will enjoy. With To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, which is a big epic science fiction with spaceships, lasers, aliens, explosions, tentacles, tragedy, uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there. That one started with two images. One was my main character uh, is a xenobiologist by the name of Kira, and she finds this alien artifact. And the image and the scene of her finding that artifact was something that really stuck with me. And then I had an image in my head for the very final scene of the book. And I, I just loved the feeling, the emotion of that scene. And then everything else in that book, all... 800, 900 some pages of that book are simply to support the existence of those two scenes and hopefully make sure that they have the same emotional effect on the reader that they had on me. People talk about the differences between characters and world and plot, and you can start with any of them. And you can be more interested in one than the other. But if you're honest with yourself, they all are equally important and they all support each other. You know, Mm. a a plot-driven story, that is to say an an event-driven story, if you're honest about it, the things that happen, the events that happen will change who the characters are. And the changes the characters experience will change what they do, which will change the events that then follow. If you start with character, it's, it's the same thing in, re- in reverse. You know, who the characters are, determine what they do and what events will happen, and also how they react to events that happen to them outside their control. And so you go back and forth between this, and then you throw a world building into that, and it's a it's a very similar thing. And it all interacts. So it almost doesn't matter where you start, as long as you're willing to fully explore, to the limit of your abilities, of course, how all, all of these elements interact.
0: So there, there are a whole slew of books out there that teach you how to write a good story. And there are college majors and and college courses Mm. in the classic three act structure and any number of other structures. How much stock do you, do you put into what you might call formulaic approaches to story writing? And, um, Mm -hmm. how much have, have those kind of classic modes of teaching influenced you?
1: Oh boy. I I could talk about that for a good half hour. I think part of it comes down to your own strengths as a writer. You know, some people are more naturally inclined toward um, structure. You know, their brains construct plots very easily, which are just you know chains of causality, but figuring out how to make that emotionally resonant to the reader is is the great challenge of storytelling. Uh, Other people are more drawn to character and have great skill with character. And some are great at both of them and are beautifully accomplished with prose. And those tend to be our, you know, our great masters. So whatever you're naturally skilled at, you may want to focus on the things that you're weaker at. Mm. In my case, I do believe that, you know, structure is incredibly important. When I was working on Aragon, I knew that I had a huge amount to learn and that it was going to take me a long time to gain the skills that I wanted to gain to be a good writer. So I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel from the from scratch. In fact, I never thought Aragon was going to be published. I was writing it for my own benefit. Mm. And to sort of give myself a safety net, I really chose to focus on the classic hero story, you know, the hero of a thousand faces, and to adapt it to my own tastes and to provide some commentary on that. The thing is, is you can teach technique. Technique is you know it's just mechanics you can teach grammar you can teach prose style you can teach story structure what you there are two things i think you can't teach maybe three one is a feel for the music of the language you either have that or you don't it's like it's like whether or not you have a feel for music actual mm-hmm. music it's something you can work on you can learn i've certainly improved over the years but there's there's some element of that that either people feel it or they don't. Mm-hmm. Two would be also a story structure, whether or not you have something interesting to stay that say there, whether you have a sense of pacing, what's too long for someone, what's too fast, what's meaningful, what's not. Editing can help there. And then lastly is, and this is probably the core of it, is whether or not you have some sort of inner passion that you mm-hmm. are struggling to convey, something you care about emotionally that drives your writing. You can't teach something like that. It's the same thing with sports. You know, you can't teach someone to love baseball or love basketball or whatever. You know, you either have some sort of affinity for it or you don't. And, and I don't mean skill. Affinity does not necessarily mean skill. Affinity means that when you do it, it gives you a reward. And that's Mm. really, really important because if you don't get some sort of emotional reward from the work, you will not put in the extra work and the hours required to become truly good at it. You know, that's the old saying of, you know, do what you love. Uh, that which is not good career advice. It's horrible career advice. But we say it because if you become a doctor just for the money, you will never be going home and reading medical journals and working on your off hours versus the person who becomes a doctor because they love it and they enjoy the process and thus they will continue to get better at it. And they will probably become more successful in their career because they actually enjoy the process. Same thing mm. with writing.
0: So to what degree are you influenced by Tolkien? <laughs> I mean... Uh, I mean, I
1: wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here without Tolkien.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Presumably. I I guess that that's the sort of obvious influence based on the world building, given that you're two of the most popular stories in recent human memory that involve elves, Mm. you know, dragons and, and so forth. Do you have any major influences that would surprise people, perhaps even from non-fantasy or non-sci-fi authors?
1: Ooh, Jane Austen. My mom read a huge amount of Jane Austen to me when I was growing up, and it definitely influenced a bit of my sense of humor and how I think about things. Although I need to revisit Jane Austen because I did not fully appreciate it as a kid. Tolstoy. Uh, I read Anna Karenina when I was a teenager, and it really opened my eyes to the full breadth and scope of what writing could accomplish. I in no way am comparing myself to Tolstoy, but that was a big, big influence on me. A lot of folklore, a lot of the classics, because the classics, it, it was interesting. You know, I started by falling in love with fantasy. Fantasy got me interested in reading, and I read pretty much all the fantasy that our local library had. And then I was desperate for more. And there really was no internet back then. So it was like, how do I find out about more? Is there more? And I was scrabbling for anything with elves or dragons or Mm -hmm. (laughs) swords or anything like that. And that of course would led me right into classical literature because it's like, oh, well, here's this giant poem called Beowulf and it's got a dragon in it. Okay. I guess I'm reading Beowulf now. And then it was, Mm -hmm. uh, oh, huh. Well, here's the Iliad and here's the Aeneid, and here's the Odyssey and here's folklore from all around the world. And it Our oldest stories are fantastical in their nature. You wouldn't necessarily shelve them in the fantasy section, but they're fantasy. And I think the reason fantasy has become so popular nowadays is that we have returned to our old stories in a sense. And maybe part of that is because movies now have the, You know, with CGI we can now depict the things that were previously impossible to depict. Maybe it's because we're past the industrial revolution and realism has is no longer appeals in quite the same way and Again, the old stories have come back and they, they, you know, the old stories appeal because human nature remains the same. You know, Mm. we still face the same philosophical problems. We still face the same interpersonal problems. Our world is vastly different, but our, I saw someone said this once and I agree. It's, you know, we're cavemen with TVs Mm. and that's true from a historical standpoint.
0: So that leads me to to another question, which is, you know, I, I remember in school, in high school, whenever we'd read a book, there would often be a sort of, uh, we would often be encouraged to analyze it in terms of biblical themes, right? Like this person Mm -hmm. is a sort of Jesus character, this person, Mm -hmm. et cetera. I'm curious how much stock you put in the Bible. I'm curious whether you grew up religious, whether religious stories had any influence on you consciously or subconsciously and whether you think that informed your writing at all.
1: I think that anyone who is interested in writing or even reading in the West should be acquainted with the Bible and specifically the King James Bible. It's a foundational text for an enormous amount of Western literature. And if you approach that literature without an understanding of the King James Bible or biblical texts in general, you'll find yourself at a disadvantage. You'll come across references, you'll come across themes, and and the author is often having a conversation with those themes and those references and, and making commentary upon them. You know, it's a thing that we don't people don't usually get classical educations these days these days in terms of those references. And that means that a lot of our great literature becomes very opaque to us because you read it and you don't you don't know what they're referring to. You don't know what they're talking about. So I read a lot of the Bible growing up. I read a lot of a number of other religious texts also. That was part of my interest of folklore and stuff. So that definitely is something I've, I've thought about and, and continue to think about. In fact, I think I've got a, yeah, I've got so I have on my shelf over here all of my writing reference books, and uh, I have Bullfinch's Mythology, which is not a up-to-date text. It's got its flaws, but it's a again a classic. Got the Norse Eddas. I've got the complete works of William Shakespeare, and here I've got the Old Testament and the New Testament sitting right there with them. So that's a it's interesting that you asked that question.
0: Yeah. Okay. Next question. So. So in the first book of The Inheritance Cycle, in Aragon, the cat Solymbum, he gives Aragon very specific advice. I think it was two pieces mm-hmm. of very specific advice that made no sense to him at the time, but referenced things that would happen, I think, either both in the fourth book or maybe one mm-hmm. in the third and one in the fourth, if, if I recall. So this implies that you you must have had the whole plot or at least all of the crucial plot points outlined before, basically before you wrote page one of Aragon. Is that right? And if so, if that's right, at what point did your original three book plan that must have been outlined from the beginning, why did that have to expand to a four book plan? Was that a tough decision?
1: So this goes back to what we were talking about with structure. I'm a big believer in structure. I had the outline for the entire Inheritance Cycle, which, as you mentioned, was was a trilogy back then, I had all of that on paper before I started Aragon, and then before I dove into each individual book, I would plot out that specific book in much greater detail. To give you an example, just roughly, that would usually mean about ten single spaced pages of outlining per book. Sometimes it was longer, sometimes it was shorter. Some of my some things did change over the course of writing the series. You know, I got to know the characters better. I had a better understanding of the world. I grew up. I got older. So a few things changed. But most of the big pieces in the fourth book stayed the same all the way through. And I can prove that because if you um, reread Aragon, there's a scene near the beginning of the book where Aragon has a, um, he has a bad fever and he has some bad dreams during the night as the result of this. And one of the dreams he has is literally the last scene in the last book. I wow, really don't I think that. that. <laughs> yeah. I personally don't like to start writing a story unless I have the ability to sit down with someone and, and verbally tell them the story from start to finish in a way that makes logical and emotional sense. Mm-hmm. If I can't do that, I don't really have the ability to write the story. Personally, I my brain cannot focus on prose, character, pacing, and plotting at the same time.
0: Yeah, I, lo- I lost the very end of your... Um response, you're saying you can't focus on plotting, writing, pacing at the same time?
1: No, I've, I find that it um, my brain can only handle a few things at a time. So I really like to work out my plot beforehand. And again, every every author is different. I know some authors discover their story as they write, and that's an important part of the process. So this is just w- w- what works for me.
0: So... The Inherited Cycle and uh, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars—they're both located technologically in times very different from our own. I mean, Aragon is implicitly located in a distant past, but with magic. Mm. To Sleep in a Sea of Stars is, you know, two hundred or two hundred twenty years from now, and they have all kinds of tech we, we don't have today. Mm-hmm. So is there something that attracts you about settings that are technologically distant from our own? And have you ever, um, have you ever written or plan to write a story that is located in, in modern times technologically?
1: I've written some short stories set in modern times, none of which have been released yet, but uh, I do want to write modern day stories. It's just a question of time. But um, as far as technology, one of the things that appealed to me with fantasy is that it was actually closer to how I lived growing up. You know, I was yeah. out in the out in the middle of a r- rural Montana with animals and trees and mountains and it looked like Lord of the Rings outside my front window and that all um uh, you know, so when I read fantasy, it felt a lot more similar than, you know, reading something set in New York City as an example. So and that's actually something I've seen with um, uh, folks in the military because they often also are, seem drawn to fantasy because it actually deals with a lot of the issues they deal with in the military, unlike a lot of other let's say, more modern fiction. And then as far as science fiction goes, you know, I am I love science fiction and I love dreaming about the future that I hope humanity will have out in the stars. I also like thinking about where technology is going. So that was a fun exercise for me in working out those implications as I see them. Also, my sci-fi book is set in what I'm calling the fractal verse, which the fractal verse includes the current day. So if I Write a current day novel; it'll be in the fractal verse and leads to that future that "To Sleep in a Sea of Stars" is set in. And uh, that way, I have a setting I can write everything that's not fantasy, and then I have my fantasy world, and I'm set for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah. So you just touched on this in your answer to the last question, but one of the things I'm I'm so impressed by in Aragon and in the Inheritance Cycle in general, especially considering how young you were when you wrote the first book, was that even at that age you had an immense knowledge of the practical nuts and bolts world building elements of the old world, like the ability to describe the process of making a sword, right? Or, um, just, you know, the, the number of old world trinkets that i most people just don't know the names of because they've been rendered irrelevant by modern technology but those things are crucial to making the world believable so i'm curious like did, how did you have such a wide knowledge of those things was it just from reading other fantasy books or did you have to do research on like how to like smelt and like to do like strange things that you might not have to do today
1: the short answer to what you're asking is that uh, i'm personally interested in all of those things i made knives growing up was doing a lot by hand because I had no money to buy anything. If I wanted something, I had to make it. And that was great research for writing fantasy. I wanted an easel at one point when I was like 14 or something. So I found a picture of an easel and I diagrammed all the parts. And then I found some spare two by fours and cut them up and built myself an easel. I still have it. It's like six feet high. It's a massive easel. i made, I've made knives. I've, built a couple of forges when I was a kid, and that was great experience. I have done research, of course, when I feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. I've got quite a few books on how to forge swords and medieval clothes and food and stuff like that. And I certainly don't get everything right, but uh, I try to make my world feel nice and realistic.
0: So I have a question about the the challenges of adapting a novel to the screen. There is this, uh, this cliche and... Um, sort of phenomenon of anytime you fall in love with a novel version of something, then the movie just always falls short. And I've I've noticed this with Harry Potter fans, for instance, like I read three or four of the books, but I was, they didn't really captivate me. So when I saw the films, I thought they were excellent because I wasn't in my mind comparing them to the book. But my sister, you know, no matter how good the films were, she was just, she would always be talking about how the books were better and how the books were different. And it can never be good enough, basically. And uh we did have we had that experience in seeing the the film version of of Aragon that it, it really didn't seem to live up to how good the story was. Somehow the execution like you have to imagine I had to imagine if Peter Jackson um had directed it, it just would have been, you know, spectacular. But I'm I'm curious like what you what is your perspective as someone who has had their story adapted to the screen once and I hear is going to have mm-hmm. it adapted again in the D- Disney Plus version. Like how much do you, how much input do you have? Is it tough to decide what doesn't go in? Because inevitably you're going to have to axe yeah. some stuff that was in the book for the screen. Um, what What is that process like?
1: I mean, it depends on... Every adaptation is different. Uh, I had no real input as far as the film went, but the television show that's currently in the works, I'm executive producing and co-writing. So I'm going to be deeply involved in the process. Adaptations are difficult. Adaptations are difficult for two really big reasons. And there there are others, but the two big reasons are, first, that even if you, the original creator, had all the skills and context needed to also adapt your work, converting one a story from one media one form of media to another is hard. You know, books can get inside someone's head. Books can convey their thoughts, books can convey emotion in ways that are very difficult for film and television. You know, a book can simply tell you how something feels. A movie mm. or a television show has to show that. And that's where a lot of the mm. that sort of a lot of the reasons for changes start right there. It's like, okay, we know how the character's feeling in the book. How do we show that? Then on top of that, when it comes to actually adapting, if if the original creator is not involved, what often happens is that the person or persons involved in the process who are in charge of the adaptation don't go through the same chain of thought that the original creator did. So someone writes a book, maybe it takes them years to write it. During that time, they're building a chain of causality in their head. They're, They're examining all the different options for the characters in the story and saying, well, if this happens then this happens, I like this, but that causes a problem over here. So I can't do that. So instead we're going to have to go in this direction, but that causes these other problems. So maybe I need a third option or a fourth or a fifth. And you work your way through like a thicket of branching possibilities until you find a path that makes sense to you and hopefully makes sense to the audience. When you come to that from the outside, it can be like, you're coming to a puzzle that's already solved and you don't understand how it's been solved. And so it's very easy for someone coming to the outside is to say, oh, I know how to do this. I, I mean, obviously it's been done. I know how to do this and we can improve it. But because they haven't put in all that years, uh, the, all those, all yeah. that time and all that thought, they can end up breaking the chain of causality. Um, you know, the Harry Potter movies are a great example. The first three, for example, are fairly close to the books and I think do... I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen them. I'm going off old memories here, but do a pretty good job in terms of adapting the books. The third one takes a few more liberties, but in all, it captures the mood. The problem is as the books got longer, it became increasingly difficult for the filmmakers to maintain the internal structure of the story and have it make sense in a film. And some of the choices they made later on would not have been the choices I would have made. But and I have to be fair here is if I'd been doing that and I'd made certain choices, lots of people wouldn't have made those choices either and would have disagreed with them. So it's, it's kind of like a no-win situation in some ways. Uh, you know, Peter Jackson's adaptations of Lord of the Rings are rightly mm-hmm. beloved and I've enjoyed them immensely myself, but he really made some interesting choices in places uh, and one could debate those. But he was overall successful and captured a feel that the audience really enjoyed. Yeah,
0: another thing I might worry about with with adaptations is so you you describe the initial intuitive emotional spark mm-hmm. that leads that is the seed of the whole story, right? For for Aragon, it's the the notion yeah. of the farm boy discovering this dragon egg, and and to sleep in the star. You had that beginning discovery and the last scene. I mean, it strikes me on an intuitive level, getting the Zen of a story has to somehow involve really understanding that spark.
1: Yes. If someone comes in and they're emotionally responding to something different in the story than the creator was, the adaptation will go in a different direction. And, and I think you see that in um, uh, the book Hugo Cabret, which was turned into uh, a Scorsese film. And it's an extraordinarily well-made film. I would have been happy to have an adaptation that was that faithful. But you can tell that Scorsese's interest was on the history of filmmaking and on Ben Kingsley's character, I think. It wasn't on the young boy and the young boy surviving in this train station, which is what to me was the interesting part of the book emotionally and with that character. And whereas the focus of the story should have been more heavily weighted. Uh, There's a book called Woman in the Dunes, which is a Japanese book, very slim book, which is possibly why it was a good adaptation. And the adaptation, I think, is one of the greatest film adaptations ever because it's just perfectly captures what the book is. And there are very few adaptations that, that do that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So here's another question about process that I have. I think I read somewhere that your upcoming book, uh, Mm -hmm. which will be out in the springtime of next year, right? That you spent basically 10 years in one way or another writing this book. And um, so clearly good writing, it seems to me, relies on always being able to put yourself in the reader's shoes, which is to say, put yourself in the shoes of someone Mm -hmm. who doesn't know all the things that are in your head because you haven't told them. And there is a danger in becoming so close to a story because you've been working on it so deeply for so long that you lose the ability to put yourself in the reader's shoes and and see it from the perspective of of a first-time reader who it has to be compelling to. So how do you avoid that, (laughs) you know, eight, you know, seven years into a story? How do you make sure you're always able to see it from the first-time reader's point of view?
1: What you're discussing is really where the role of an editor becomes so important. Because the editor can be that new set of eyes for you, and and not just an editor, but anyone else in your circle of friends or family who you know can be an early reader for you. I, in the case of my upcoming novel, uh, so I actually have two books that are publishing next year. The first one is a science fiction novel. It's a prequel to "To Sleep in a Sea of Stars." Uh, the title is Fractal Noise, and I wrote the first draft of it back in two thousand. I want to say 2013, so about 10 years ago. Now, I wasn't writing it, working on it nonstop this whole time because after I wrote the first draft of Fractal Noise, and by the way, this is the first interview where I've actually been able to say the title since I wrote the darn thing back in 2013 because it's finally been announced. So I wrote that first draft and it didn't really succeed. It's like the core of it was there, but it needed work. And I didn't want to make that book, my first entry into my fractal verse setting. It, it wasn't what I really wanted to be my best foot forward. Best foot's the wrong phrasing. I didn't want it to be the first introduction to this world. So I went on and then worked on To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, which was a similar process where I wrote the first draft in 2014 and it didn't publish till 2020. And I didn't even have um, the the version that is currently published. I didn't have anything resembling it until 2018. Yeah, sometime 2018. So that was a long, hard process. I also have a book with dragons publishing next year, but that's, I can't tell you the title quite yet. So again, to answer your question, it's hard. You can't really ever see it the way a, a, a reader will, especially a first time reader. And that's infuriating at times because you have no idea sometimes how things will Affect readers. You know, ideas are easy to convey. Emotions are hard. I think that's the hardest thing for any art form to do: is to successfully communicate or invoke the emotion you want in your audience. So, you know, I, I give my books to a lot of early readers. I ask my editor. I say, you know, is this working? How did it make you feel? Is it paced too quickly? Do we need more information? Do we need less information? Is the prose style appropriate? Am I going off the deep end with my <laughs> descriptions? You know, do I? Do we need more? Just all of that is part of the process.
0: What is it like to get to the end of a draft of something you've really care about and come to the realization that it's not really working
1: the way it needs to. When I was younger, that would have been a devastating thing. I say that, but I wrote the first draft of Aragon fairly quickly. And when I finished, I sat down and read it through for the first time and I was really excited because this was the first book I'd ever written. I was getting to actually read it. I was expecting to generally enjoy it. Although I'm sure there would be some things that needed fixing, but I was expecting to enjoy it. It was pretty awful. And just to give you a few examples, the first, in the first draft of Aragon, my main character was not named Aragon. He was named Kevin. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And there was a, there was a unicorn in the, wow, there was a unicorn in the book at one <laughs> That's point. A pretty big um, change. Yeah. So wow. even with my first book, I had that experience of realizing that there were some big issues in that draft that needed resolving. And it was discouraging and it was painful and the rewrites were discouraging and painful, but I just didn't give up. Maybe it's, I don't know, my constitution. I refuse to give up. And I've done that for so long that it's now kind of part of my identity. If I were to give up on a project, I would feel as if I had betrayed myself. So I just don't give up sometimes to my own detriment. Mm. But again, it's painful. And part of what I've learned over the years is that, you know, just because you write a bad sentence or paragraph or chapter or character or storyline, or even a bad first draft does not necessarily make you a bad author. It's a natural part of the process. If you look at examples of editing that accomplished authors, authors who've been working for 30, 40 years and are widely hailed for their you know, skills and artistry. If you look at examples of their editing that they've released, even after 20, 30, 40 years of writing, they're still ripping their own prose apart. They're still fixing it. They're still rearranging it. No one gets it right right the first time. So feeling as if you should sets sets you up for failure. Instead by coming to realize that fixing things is the natural process of writing, for me at least, has been enormously freeing. I mean, so it's not like I am overjoyed when I get extra work or when I realize, hey, I'm going to have to do a bunch of, you know, rewrites on a draft. But at the same time, it doesn't beat me into the ground because I'm like, okay, this is normal. And I I really like, there's a saying in the military, which is, you know, embrace the suck, which, you know, do the things that are difficult because you have to do them anyway. Mm. And by doing them, you get better, you get stronger, and you actually accomplish the things you want to accomplish.
0: So um, one trend that I think is sweeping the culture right now, beginning with, I guess, beginning with laptops, Mm -hmm. maybe even televisions, but definitely accelerating with social media, with iPhones combined with social media, with TikTok, Mm -hmm. with YouTube shorts, with Instagram shorts, is that in the, you know, the total, the pie chart of the maybe 16 hours humans get you know waking hours per day i think we are spending more and more of it on short form content on the video that is 10 seconds rather than you know even the tv show that's an hour right like no. ultimately everything is in competition with everything else right like i have 16 hours in a day i could spend it reading or i could spend it on tiktok i could spend it watching movies but we're seeing movie audiences are declining, you know, sort of year by year over the past 10, 15 years. Obviously your specialty is ultra long form content, you know, books that are 500 to 800 pages. Do you, is the trend toward short form content something that worries you? Do you think that something certain... Uh, things are lost, certain sort of sacred and beautiful things are lost in short form content? Or do you think that's just <laughs> the, the opinion that Luddites always have that yeah. actually there is is really not much to worry about? Um, how do you think about that?
1: Boy, I'm, I'm torn on this one because I'm a huge fan of technology. I'm... My family, we've always been, my family and I, we've always been early adopters of, I mean, we had some like the, the Mac classics, you know, the early Mac computers back in the day. We got iPhones when they first came out. You know, I I think the technology is awesome and has made our lives far better than they would be otherwise at, on average. But there is an entire industry and industries which are devoted to and revolve around occupying your attention and spiking your dopamine consistently and then leaving you craving more to the detriment of your actual life. You know, if you play, I mean, like, like mobile games are a great example, you know, and I'm sure everyone can think of, you know, everything from Candy Crush to uh, thousands of others. They're designed to give you just enough mental reward and just enough mental challenge that you keep going and you don't give up. But you're never satisfied, or you're only satisfied for a quick little bit, and then you need more. And it just chews away at your concentration and your enjoyment of life. Um, quite recently, I just stopped carrying my phone with me when I'm out and about. And it's been absolutely wonderful, especially now that I have children, just being more present with them as a result. It's, it's easier to think <laughs> when you're not constantly getting distracted by email and Twitter and whatever else the like YouTube shorts, you know, I would not criticize anyone for watching YouTube shorts or TikTok or something like that. But again, it's, it's designed to stimulate the, you know, the, the response that we get toward novelty and you keep scrolling and it just never ends. I used to joke when I gave interviews that I would wake up in the morning, grab my coffee and attempt to read the entire internet and then I would go do my work. I don't try to do that anymore. It's too big and it's too well designed to stimulate our addictive tendencies. I have addictive tendencies. Anyone who will like get so interested in something that will sit down and write a 500-page novel about it probably has addictive tendencies. So I cannot let myself channel that energy into things that will consume me to the detriment of my career and my family and my personal life. That's why I will not play, you know, MMORPGs like World of Warcraft or things like that. I will not get on TikTok as a consumer. I might be there as a, you know, as a producer, as a creative, but I'm not going to be there as a consumer. I used to play some mobile games. I deleted them off my phone. I just said, you know, I'm addicted. They're gone. And, um, life's been better because of it.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing I've noticed is how many creative products in life I, that I love and cherish things that have made me cry, brought me to tears were not mm-hmm. catchy in the, in the first moments, right? Like how mo- how many great movies you yeah. might've turned off after the first two scenes, you know, had you been distracted by your phone or something, but the groundwork is being laid for a much deeper mm-hmm. emotion at the at the climax of a story than you could ever get really from any tiktok video precisely because it's just not long enough it, it has to right like a tiktok video if oh, it doesn't fa- grab me failed. in 5 it's seconds failed. i'm swiping to the next one yeah i mean right it, it, it but it closed, that closes the door to a certain range of reactions and deep emotions that you could possibly have towards the product
1: and, and this leads to a deeper thing also which is that even if you're struggling financially and i've been there and i know what that's like and it's no fun at all and i you know things are hard now and they're going to get a lot harder for a lot of people i think in the near future with a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world but in general in especially in you know developed countries temptation is one of the greatest challenges we face because you know we have delicious food available pretty much at any time doesn't have to be healthy but it tastes good video games you know give you that sense of having accomplished something without actually accomplishing anything in the real world. And I'm not trying to downplay the importance of play and recreation because it's, mm. in, it's incredibly important, and I love video games, but you have to be careful with them. There's a whole lot of things right now in, in the modern life, especially online, that give you instant gratification on a whole lot of stuff. So you get the gratification without having had to really work for the thing that you get. You know, if the only way you could get something sweet was to go climb a tree and fight off a bunch of bees and hack out some honeycomb and carry it back to your you know your tribe and you get some honey once every couple of months if that you know would that be a problem no and you get that reward but the fact that you can have sugar anytime anywhere at any time in any amount is hard and and what it means is i think a lot of people are walking through life constantly having to resist temptation which exhausts your mental reserves, and I know there's research on this that, you know, I've noticed it like with editing. If I do a long, long day of editing, I lose my ability to make good decisions by the end of the day. Like the the chemical balance in the brain, the chemicals used for making decisions get depleted. Mm -hmm. They found this with judges, judges who are, you know, making decisions on, uh, you know, sentencing. They give harsher sentences at the end of the week or when they're hungry before lunch than they do after lunch or early in the week. You know, we lose resilience when you're constantly having to make decisions and con- constantly having to resist what one one's, one views as temptation. So, my approach to this used to be, well, I, you know, I'm disciplined. I can be around whatever I want to be around. Not a problem. But you know, it's not worth it. It just creates stress and friction in your life. So, I have increasingly just said, it's not in the house or it's not around. It's it's and then I don't have to think about it. That's a luxury a lot of people don't have, but You know, there's some truth to the fact that I think that whether or not one is successful in the modern world, in a large part, is going to be determined by how well you can withstand addiction. And that's without even, you know, considering things that are actually, you know, addictive substances.
0: Yeah. Okay. My final question. So this will be a spoiler if you haven't read it, so obviously turn it off now, but the wordless spell mm-hmm. that Aragorn casts at the very end of the inheritance cycle to finally defeat Galbatorix, yeah. the, the climactic moment of the whole series really, is Aragorn's conveying that he wants Galbatorix to understand, to understand mm-hmm. the harm that he's causing. And that word understand is in italics. I noticed in "Into Sleep in a, in a Sea of Stars," there's this moment where Kira is recalling an, a, a conversation with Alan. This is after Alan has been killed, where he talks about his fantasy of exploring the far reaches of the universe, and she asks, "Why would you want to do that?" And he says, mm. "Well, to know and to understand." And that word "understand" again is is in italics, and I'm curious if there if there's some if there's something there, some common or shared theme or power of that word in that concept of understanding, or if I'm just, uh, if I'm just seeing what is actually a coincidence.
1: These books reflect my own private obsessions. So you're definitely picking up on things that I've wrestled with. Part of me feels that if we truly could understand the experience of another person, and by that, I mean, not just intellectually, but to feel the things that they are feeling physically and emotionally, it would be difficult, if not impossible to hurt someone else. Especially if, and then if you add in more Mm. people than one, you know, but all the people in your life or all the people in the city or all the people in the country. And if you really understood how your affections, excuse me, your actions affected them, if you're someone like Albatorex who has influence over a large number of people, that that would be a devastating realization. You know, and it goes back to the idea of, you know, understanding and knowledge being power, if you will. Of course, I saw someone on the internet yesterday who said, if reading is knowledge and knowledge is power and power corrupts, then reading corrupts. But <laughs> I, that, that, that made me laugh. Not not the case, keep reading. <laughs> um, but no, I, I find myself inexhaustibly curious about the world around us. I find the fact of existence somewhat staggering. And when I was doing research for the science behind To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, which I spent an entire year doing research for that, I really became convinced that there are some truly deep realities of reality that we are fundamentally misunderstanding and just don't understand. And I'm sure a lot of physicists would quite happily agree with that. But what that means is that there are things that we thoroughly believe right now to be the case, to be the truth about the universe and existence that quite likely will be overturned at some point. And it's also possible we may never actually get true deep answers as to why there is something instead of nothing. But... I still find myself grappling with those questions and revolving around them and always trying to learn more, always trying to understand.
0: All right, Christopher Paolini, this has been really great. And um, thanks so much for coming on my show. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.